You're listening to Death of the Reader. Flex here with you, here on your Murder Mystery World Tour. And we are joined, finally, at long last, after years of requests by one Solari Gentle, by Chris Hammer, author of Scrublands, Treasure and Dirt, and most recently, The Tilt, as well as several other books between the Chris Hammer Extended Universe. It's getting pretty broad these days. Chris, it is wonderful to have you on the show to talk about The Tilt. Welcome to Death of the Reader. Uh, thank you so much. So good to be here. So... Often in the world of crime fiction, we operate in tidy parallels, neat coincidences, so that when it all wraps up in the end, there's a symmetry to it all. And I felt like from a mystery perspective, which is my home turf, that was the core question of the tilt. Would these crimes, would these slowly unveiling bodies after bodies all have these neat parallels? Talk to me about the messiness of reality, Chris. Well, my challenge with this book is there's three different timelines in the book. One is a young lad, aged about 11, in this big forest in World War II. And the forest in, in um, question is the Barma Millawa Forest, the world's biggest red gum forest, a real place, down on the Murray River. So you've got this kid in the forest minding the cattle. Then you've got a story of a teenage girl growing up in the 70s in a nearby town And then you have the contemporary story, which is Nell Buchanan, the homicide detective, newly minted, and she's trying to um, solve a cold case. A a body has been found in this forest, right? So my challenge was how to tie them all together because they do eventually, but it's hard to keep the pace going, three different points of view, three different timelines, and then they do gradually kind of meld together. So, yeah, that was, that was quite a challenge and it, was, it started out messy. That's the beauty of crime fiction, though. You can, always, you can always tidy up and you can always find out who did it and you can always resolve all the issues, at least if you want to. Yeah, I thought one thing that was really apparent to me, both in reading but especially in rereading this book, was the strength of voice in between these three eras. You really captured, if not, uh, like, I can't speak to the accuracy as a young man from the 21st century, but at least very distinctly captured a tone of voice for each of those three different eras. I guess, what was the process for you in kind of uncovering the personalities and the eras in which those personalities were written from? The story of the young lad with the cattle was the seed for that was planted years ago when I did a non-fiction book during the height of the millennial drought about the fate of the Murray-Darling Basin, and I spent about a week in that forest. And I met this old man in his 80s, a guy called Tim Mannion, and he told me about when he was aged 11 how he had to go into the forest and mine the family cattle uh, at the height of a drought. And that's, that just planted the seed for that storyline, which in the book is told by an old man, you know, in the present day, remembering what it was like when he was a lad. So that's one voice, probably owes something to that gentleman that I, that I met, you know, 10 or 12 years ago. The teenage girl in the, in the 70s, I'm old enough to... Um, remember the 70s, I had an older brother and and sister who bought a lot of music, and music was really important back then, particularly if you lived outside the major cities and you couldn't access, you know, there was no double J or triple J or anything like that, and it was just records and whatever. It was a very, 
kind of glued the youth to, to, together at a, a time of some rebellion. So I think a little bit of the voice there. So her, her story, though, is told past tense, but as if it's happening. And then Nell's story is the contemporary story, and it's told present tense. So the, the voice of the, of the three uh, narrators, if you like, are all quite distinct. That, and that was fun to do. That was fun sort of exploring that as a writer. Yeah. I, I suppose the thing that you point out there that was really interesting to me was the use of music as this kind of binding element for the era of the 70s. And to some extent, each era of the book does share that binding element, you know, in the modern day, because the story is told through the lens of a newly minted homicide detective, a lot of the overlaps in careers with the local cop Kevin and how you know, Nell used to work where he's looking to move to, uh, you know, the youth in the 1970s, even though they all listen to different music or bond over the fact that there is music. And I don't want to talk about what binds the 1940s together because I feel like that answer is given way too late in the game, but I did love that glue together. I guess, you know, people coming together over history has changed so much, but how do you recognize those pieces of glue when you're trying to bind characters together for each era? Each era has its own characteristics, of course, but deep down people are essentially the same. And, you know, you read historical novels set back in the, you know, the Middle Ages or the Roman Empire and the motivations end up being very similar and the people end up being similar. And that's how I look at my characters. I'm not, I'm, I don't try and have someone as a every woman or an every man from a particular era. I have them as an individual with all their you know, idiosyncratic sort of flaws and virtues and how then how they operate in that world. I thought it was interesting the way that you turn that concept on its head, that the binding agent in the modern day has two sides to it where one is terrible. Down in this big forest, it's become a something of a magnet for uh, anti-vaxxers and conspiracy theorists and, and preppers. And so that adds a certain sort of colour to the book adds a bit of humour at times. It adds some real threat at, at times. I'm not, but I don't paint those characters as necessarily bad or evil, um, more like they're being manipulated by people, you know, with, with, with bad motives and evil motives and whatever. And I think this is something that crime writers pick up on a, a little bit is what's, what are the issues in society today that are kind of troubling people? It helps add atmosphere and, and, you know, if people find it troubling, you know, it's there in a book. So it makes the book topical because the beauty of a book too is you can resolve all those issues as well. Yeah, I guess from from there, one of the other interesting tilts is that at the beginning of this book, we have this lovely vignette showing two characters uh, undertaking espionage in the middle of the night, for lack of a better word. And that then leads into uh, the regulator, the water regulator in this small town being blown up and that kind of being the opening framing device for the finding of the bodies. And I guess the thing that I was curious about water regulation systems along that river have been a real interesting hot topic in terms of what those water systems are doing to the river's ecosystem, was that a driving force for this framing device for you? No, I was very conscious of the state of the forest over time. So I visited it back 10 or more than 10 years ago at the height of that drought. And the forest was kind of dying then, or the periphery was for lack of water. But um, 
I met some environmentalists who had, had told me that in its natural state before all the dams and the weirs and the regulation of the rivers, the forest was a forest for eight or nine months of the year and the wetlands for three or four months as in the, when the winter rains and the snowmelt came, the, uh, the Murray River would break its banks and the water would flow out into the forest. So it was like one large tree field kind of lake, if you like, a bit like the Florida Everglades or something like that. And so it's a bit like that now after these La Nina years. So I went down and looked at it and lo and behold, there it was, this wonderful sort of wetland, you know, with, with the most incredible bird life and whatever. That's where the idea of the location, the setting and the, and the story and some of the motives for the murders and things like that started to evolve. The fact is the river down there, it's, um, there's this thing called the Cadell Tilt and that's part of the reason why the book's called Tilt and it blocks the Murray. And the Murray over, over the millennia has found its way around this tilt, this uplift of, of land. But it means the river's really, really shallow and so if there's too much water goes down, it just floods into the forest. And the creeks that, that lead, they don't lead into the Murray, they lead out of the Murray. And so they've put these regulators in there to stop water flowing out of the Murray into the forest. And so at the start of the book, there's somewhat, it starts with someone blowing up one of those regulators to let water back into the forest. Um, that leads to the discovery of bodies but there's also, at the same time, there's a man running for his life in the forest in the night, but you don't know why. Yeah, I guess it, it, it's so interesting as well, like the use of the word regulate. Like, obviously, to some extent, it is a technically accurate word, but I did love it as the framing device for this book because the regulator has this, like, menacing, almost kind of patronizing uh, phrase to it. The Murray splits into two rivers. It's like a delta halfway along. The Edwards flows out and it rejoins hundreds of kilometres later down there near Swan Hill. That is more like a weir. The regulators are on the creeks running into the forest, but this is the technical term that's used. I haven't branded it. I haven't taken a weir and branded it as a regulator. And the water people who manage rivers, they say, it's a regulated river and how do we regulate it? And in the Murray-Darling Basin, essentially there's one unregulated river, as they call it, and that's the Paru, way out west of Verk, because it's got no dams or weirs on it. All the rest are to some degree regulated. And the Murray, the lower reaches, well, you know, well up past the South Australian border, uh, is essentially like a canal, a series of weirs, and locks. So you can take a boat up from the Southern Ocean and you can get all the way to Echuca. It is a highly regulated river. Yeah, it's also really interesting that coming from Treasure and Dirt, which I guess to use one word would be a very dry novel uh, in terms of its landscape compared to the very wet La Nina sort of setting that you've given, uh, that you've given the tilt. How was it kind of i mean obviously we've lived through a similar transition in real life but how was it writing that sort of transition seeing the environment change so much as the rains came back in so heavily look i think it's an enjoyable part of the book what i'm trying to do in writing a book is well, one of the one of the things is to build this world and invite the reader in and say that it's an immersive kind of read and this is the book's sort of books that I really like reading. You know, when you enter, it's like another world. 
Now, that might be a totally fictional world. It could be based on a like a real place, as indeed this is. My third book, um, Trust, was set in Sydney. But and I, even though the description is geographically correct, you know, it's a rather gritty, sinister, post-COVID type of Sydney with high-level corruption and all sorts of nefarious affairs going on and, you know, all sorts of fraud and whatever. So you take what you've got and then you shape it and paint it and that then informs the writing, it informs the characters, the way the characters behave. Um, it's one of the, uh, you know, it's one of the joys I like when I'm reading but also as a writer it's, it's wonderful to sort of grow this story with characters that kind of come to life in my mind and, and hopefully the readers' minds, and you understand why they do things, why good people at times do bad things and bad people do good things and everything else in between. Well, yeah, I mean, first of all, speaking of trust, I did love the continuation of the Martin Scarsden extended universe with his appearance uh, <laughs> in in passing. So Ivan Lukic is, um, he and Nell are point of view characters in Treasure and Dirt. They're the two detectives, right? So he's, he's very present also in Tilt, although he's not a point of view character. But he's a very minor character in the first three books. He's just a rather surly offsider to a policeman called Morris Montefiore. And so, yeah, there's some, in this book, there's some, characters and references to characters from past books. You know, Martin Scarsden gets a mention here or there for, for good reason. Uh, it's not just a put in for fun. It makes <laughs> sense. It, it helps the plot. But no, I enjoy that. I like, um, I think as a kid I really liked Tintin books, you know, yeah. the, the, the Belgian cartoonist, which has a lot of recurring characters. It's like the universe. And also, say, the American crime writer Michael Connolly. So, his main character is a policeman or former policeman called Hieronymus Bosch, but there's a couple of other recurring characters who are, who are sometimes like minor characters, say in a Bosch book, but then in another book they will be the main character. So there's a lawyer called Mickey Haller and then there's a journalist called Jack McAvoy, and they're often encountering the same sort of people and when they're going to the same places. And so... I don't know how many books Michael Connolly's written. It's probably 30 or 40 at least. But, um, you know, they all kind of inhabit this same kind of demimon Los Angeles. And it's lovely. And I think it's one of the pleasures of reading a book like that is, you know, you, you come across some of the same characters. Well, yeah. I mean, one of the great things about the way that you've kind of done character exploration in this book too is that by kind of using Ivan almost as us in the story where we are the offsider occasionally reaching in to like, you know, almost throwing our feedback in in the same way that you would hear feedback from readers in between each iteration of your series – and I thought it was such a great way to explore Nell, like, on her own so much more than Treasure and Dirt, where, you know, it, it's much more personal to her because it's a town near where her family lives. It's, you know, potentially a relative of hers is one of the list of missing people that they're working through to identify these bodies. Why was it Nell you chose to give the focus in this book? Well, my, my first three books featured Martin Scarsden and increasingly his partner, Mandalay Blonde. And all those three books, they, they got quite, as well as the puzzles of crimes and whatever, there's an emotional element to them. And I didn't know how 
how I could take that much further. So I thought, oh, I'll just take a break and I'll write a standalone novel. That's what Treasure and Dirt was meant to be, kind of a one-off. But as I was writing it, both Ivan and particularly Nell grew on me. I'm thinking there's more to these characters. Why are they doing this? Why are they doing that? And so that's why Nell is a point of view character here because not only does she have the frustrations of being a newly minted homicide detective really sort of fighting the odds to get a result in this investigation, it becomes personal, intensely personal, because not only is it the possibility that one of the victims might be related to her, the question then starts arised, you know, are some of her family members actually implicated in the killing? And that makes it, I think, for the reader, you know, so much a, a more intriguing book and one and one where you, you feel a lot of empathy for Nell. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the great things about Nell as a character is that she is both so competent but in a situation that really, like, hits all of the pressure points at, like, in some ways the worst possible moments for her. There's a sense where, like, you know, this is her turning from the sidekick into the crime fiction protagonist, which is not something that you see many crime fiction sidekick characters do through history, you know, what what about Nell do you think makes her so compelling? What endeared her to you that made her take that transition? On one hand, she's very tough and resilient and she stands up for herself and, you know, she's not easily intimidated. You know, on another level, she's quite vulnerable and sensitive. So that kind of inner conflict within the character makes it, makes it interesting. And I think I think many readers will, you know, like her. They'll think, oh, this is, you know, she, she certainly doesn't, she's not always a winner, put yeah. it that way. B- because she's newly minted, she's left kind of to her own devices with only Kevin, uh, the local cop, to to kind of help her out. You really get to see that kind of laid bare while Ivan, as I said, kind of takes this almost readership role where he's he's calling in. I guess the thing that was interesting about advice coming in on high there as we also start to deal with like the Australian war memorial and war archives because of the old prisoner of war camp that used to be there. There were prisoners of war, Italian prisoners of war in the Barma Forest during World War II. These were captives from early on in the war when the Australians were fighting in North Africa and thousands, maybe tens of thousands of Italians surrendered and many of them were shipped to Australia and in turn, but they're often like put to work. So they were put to work in the forest, helping to cut wood. There was a big, um, almost like an industry in the forest during the war, making charcoal. Because oil was imported, it was incredibly rare and most of it went to the military. But someone had worked out that you could actually drive cars, you could power cars, by burning charcoal. It's so interesting that these tiny rural communities have like, you know, so much global history because uh, so often we think of them in a, at least a crime fiction context as cut off from the world. I was talking with Margaret Hickey about uh, her latest novel, Stone Town, in that effect and how really the country isn't cut off from the city anymore. But to some extent, the thing that I saw through the tilt was that it never really was. You know, even though the kids think of Sydney and Melbourne as these far off places, the largest cities in the world, uh, as I think one character says at some point in the book, but, you know, there is that sense that they aren't 
that rural as we maybe would often believe in the way crime fiction presents it. Yeah, there's a view, I think, in the cities that, you know, some far, some of the far-flung towns in Australia are kind of monocultural and full of rednecks, but particularly those river towns down along the Murray and the Murrumbidgee, many of them were really settled and developed post-Second World War uh, and, you know, with irrigation schemes. So they are incredibly multicultural. You go to a town like Mildura and they have like uh, 60 different nationalities, people coming around and, and signs on the towns as you enter them, you know, refugees welcome here because they, they want the workforce, right? So it's not so, in fact, some of these towns are more multicultural and more functional in that regard than our big cities are. Yeah, I mean, one of the one of the fun ideas that's uh, in this book uh, is the oh god, what's the name of the the wine company, the Pirate Wine Company? It slipped my mind. The River Pirate Wines, yes. The River Pirate Wines, that's right. And uh, the way that that kind of plays on that historical notion of you know the outsider's suspect nature. Uh, of an Italian making a, a winery in this like tiny town along the Murray River, I thought that was fantastic. Well, of course, some of Australia's biggest wineries are down in those irrigation areas, um, often run by Australians of you know European heritage. Uh, now that was fun writing that, and and that that storylines we we won't kind of go into any spoilers, but it helps link the different eras. Yeah, I suppose the other thing that I wanted to get into before I let you go, and this is absolutely spoilers, but the one thing that I found absolutely hilarious through this entire book was trying to keep track of Nell's family lineage. Like, I had the entire book along, uh, started putting together a chart of who was related to who, only to find out that you'd put one in the back of the book anyway. So I got to the end, turned the last page, and I was like comparing mine to the one that you'd put in the book. <laughs> That so was great. The idea I had different ideas with this idea of a family tree. Yeah. So there was one where where we'd have a really basic one at the start, uh, and then it would evolve as the book went along, and Nell discovered different things about her family, and then we went, oh, we'll just have one at the at the start. Nell's view of who's connected to who at the start of the book, and then a final one. And in the end, we just decided we'll go to the we'll go with the final one. But I would say to you, to readers, the reason it's at the end is because if you look at it at the start, it contains spoilers. So so don't look at it. Wait till you get to the end. Oh of the yeah, book. yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. Um, There's the, a map at the start of the book that'll that'll keep you interested. Yeah, and the the other thing that like I've I've I was trying to figure out how to ask a spoil like a non spoilery question about this. But I just, I just couldn't come up with one that was a non-spoilery question. Was the way that, as I kind of uh, was talking at the beginning, everything kind of has these neat parallels, but there are these unique differences, era to era, where like uh, what happens with Eamon and the general that he kills, what happens with Nell's family, and how all of those kind of neatly overlap, leading up to the uh, the ASIO investigation. And I just thought it was so clever that, like, even though they were all so different and disconnected and didn't really line up tidily, that each one kind of taught you how to understand the other. I thought that was genius. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I mean, it takes, with all those, you know, there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of balls in the air, particularly riding across these three eras. 
So it took me quite, because I'm a bit of a, um, I don't plot everything out in advance. I'm a bit of a so-called pantser. So, yeah, it took, took a lot a lot of rewriting and that, and, to, and you know, but I think by the end it, it all kind of works and all makes sense. God, I hope so. <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was fantastic, especially the whole idea of like, Jimmy Waters, if you really do a sit down and crunch out the numbers, you could figure out which incident he was talking about the entire book long. But the incident he's talking about is kind of chronologically ambiguous until about three quarters of the way through the book. And the moment you realize which one he's talking about, it's suddenly like, oh, I now understand all three. And it's it's fantastic. Oh, that's great. Oh, thank you. That, oh, good. I'm glad it works for you. I guess the last thing I wanted to ask before I let you go, Chris, is that we have Jimmy Waters as a kind of narrator character in this book. And for the non-spoiler version of this discussion, I can't get into the full genius of what you've done here, but there's a chronological ambiguity to him. If you would really sit down, do the math, figure out where in the family tree he is, you could tell what his... Uh, what his confession is about, which we kind of follow the whole way through the book. But why not tell readers what Jimmy is talking about uh, from the start? What what was what was the field you left open for yourself with that ambiguity? I think you want readers to be engrossed in the story and wonder what's going on. You don't want it just given to them. It is, you know, eventually it's all resolved, of course. But I think just to capture the uh, the imagination of the reader and have him have him tell his story and let it stand on its own before it's integrated into the wider story. Yeah, I think I think that's like the the real sense that I walk away from this book is that as I was saying at the beginning, there is this messiness. This n- not everything lines up, but integration I think is a really neat word that kind of ties some of the themes and structures. Uh, of how this book works together where everything integrates nicely in the end even if it doesn't quite all end up uh mirrored in the way that one might expect in crime fiction yeah i mean i didn't see any great necessity to have you know everything mirroring everything else i mean life's not really like that i think so either way chris it has been an absolute pleasure both reading the tilt and getting to pick your brain on it i've had a wonderful time and Thank you so much for joining us here on Death of the Reader. Well, thank you so much for, for reading it and thanks so much for having me on and it'd be a pleasure to come back anytime. No worries. I look forward to it. Thanks, as always, to you for joining us here on the podcast while we talk with Chris Hammer about The Tilt and thank you to Alan and Unwin for hooking us up with an advanced copy of the book. We'll be back with more. Make sure you're subscribed. This is your Murder Mystery World Tour.